You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Sam West, Webster and by phone with Gus Deseriga about their new project, Pagan Currents, an online open-source Creative Commons journal for serious pagan work intended for practicing pagans. Its origins are in the controversies that played out over the purge of pagans with so-called wrong ideas from the Pantheacon Conference this past February. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Heroes from the Shadows, which features Handel arias that offer supreme examples of the tensions between heroic and anti-heroic characters in Baroque opera. Contralto Natalie Stutzman sings and directs the Orfeo 55 Ensemble. This aria is called Saro Qual Vento and is from Handel's Alessandro. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. 
The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Fabulous to be here with our fabulous guests. This week on the show, Rob and I speak with two previous guests, um, Sam Webster and Gus DeZeriga, about their new project, Pagan Currents, an online open-source creative commons journal for serious pagan work intended for practicing pagans rather than academics, while acknowledging the overlap between the two groups. It's uh, certainly a, a compendium and a place and a location for them to put much of their creative work and uh, uh, probably the work from others as well. And it has not been without its controversies, which we will get into as we get into the discussion. Sam Webster, Ph.D., Master of Divinity, Mage, hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, UK, studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. He is an adept of the Golden Dawn, a co-founder of the Chthonic Uranian Templar Order, and an initiate of Wicca, Druidic, Buddhist, Hindu, and Masonic traditions. His work has been published in journals such as Green Egg and Gnosis, and 2010 saw his first book, Tantric Thalema, establishing the, uh, the publish house Concrescent Press. In uh, 2001, he founded the Open Source Order of the Golden Dawn, and in 2013 founded the Pantheon Foundation. Sam serves the pagan community as a priest of Hermes. Gus Zeriga combines decades of work in Wicca and shamanic healing with an academic background, including a Ph.D. in political theory and extensive teaching and publishing experience in mainstream academia. He is a third-degree elder in Gardnerian Wicca, studied closely with Timothy White, who later founded Shaman's Drum magazine, and intensely practiced Brazilian Umbanda for six years under Antonio Costa e Silva as well as integrating it into his own healing work afterwards. He has given workshops and talks on pagan spirituality and healing in the United States and Canada, as well as organized international conferences and taught internationally in the social sciences. Gus's book, Fault Lines, The Sixties, The Culture War, and The Return of the Divine Feminine, received a 2014 Silver Award from the Association of Independent Publishers. Pagans and Christians, The Personal Spiritual Experience, won Best Nonfiction of 2001 from the Coalition of visionary resources. So, Sam and Gus, welcome back to the Mystical Positivist. Hi, Rob. Hi, Stuart. Thank you. Good to be back, even if at a distance. I I, I uh, get it, but uh, but uh, we will uh, bridge the distance. And uh, in fact, and, well, yeah, we want, we were just commenting. I think this is the first for us. This is the first time we've had a guest in the studio and on the phone. Uh, uh, at the same time, so this is a. Uh, Fortunately, they they work together already. So um, on, <laughs> on this project, that uh, will be uh, the subject of much of our discussion. But I want to begin um, by inviting you each to sort of update um, listeners who may have heard your previous appearances on the Mystical Positivist. I'll, let's start with you, Gus. Um, I know you're, or at least I've heard that you have a writing project going in addition to um, Pagan Currents and whatever else uh, is going on, um, but 
but uh, just uh, tell us what's been what's been happening in your life and your work uh, in the last in recent years. Um, I sometimes joke that I have writing projects, um, adding up the way good winter storms add up on a, a California wet season. Um, I have a book coming out uh, about this time next year from Llewellyn with the title uh, God is Dead, Long Live the Gods, The Case for Polytheism. Nothing controversial about that, of course. <laughs> and um, then I'm also working on a number of, of, of more orthodox social science uh, articles for journals mm-hmm. uh, that may ultimately become a book on liberalism. Ah, okay. And um, that pretty much is keeping me um, busy here in Taos, where I, I moved three years ago. So uh, is there a, a, a local pagan scene that you interact with uh, there in Taos? There is, but it's it's uh, very much like a community of cats. <laughs> that is, Taos is probably the most pagan place I've ever lived in terms of the sensibility. You've got um, the Taos Pueblo, which has many traditional practitioners of, of their of the Tiwa tradition mm-hmm. um, and then you have an extraordinary variety of, of other spiritual and religious traditions and Lambda started a temple for Hanuman here mm-hmm. in Taos that is oh I, you know I, among, I, among I just I, I just Hindus saw a po- I just saw a post on that and some pictures that they they I think they it's just now opening, right? Is they like they've just completed. Oh no, it. it's been around for years. Oh really? Yeah. Well, the pictures look quite beautiful. It's uh, it looks like a stunning place. It is. And then there's you know there's there's Buddhists. There's I mean there's basically everything you can imagine. Probably uh, some traditions you would have a hard time imagining here in Taos, but it's um, very individualistic, at least in the pagan tradition. Uh, but we have Wiccans, we have Druids, we have um, no, almost anything you could imagine, probably. And so far as I experienced in the three years, everybody seems to get along very nicely, which is very refreshing. Delightful. Well, um, maybe this is an opportunity then to ask Sam what he's been up to uh, the last few years here, he's still here in the Bay Area. Well, I've got a couple of projects besides the one that's on the table that has been uh, cooking along. The past year has been spent putting together a, a chapter, a major section to Llewellyn's c- b- Complete Book of Ceremonial Magic. Oh. It'll be coming out, I think, in February or sometime shortly thereafter, the spring at least. And uh, I was asked to do the history chapter. So um, the first chapter of the book is all mm-hmm. about, like, where do we come from? And um, talking about, well, you know, where we come from has all this stuff that we've had inherited. And then anthropologists and archaeologists and all these historians worked back and discovered many things that were very different. So the blending of uh, misunderstandings of the past and then new understandings of the past and how we're putting that together today makes for some real challenges in understanding the history of the modern pagan movement. Well, that's fascinating. As a as someone with a, a background in archaeology, I'm uh, very familiar with uh, uh, <laughs> problems of interpretation. So um, um, I'll be interested to read that myself because uh, I think um, 
there's probably lots of f- fertile ground to keep you uh, t- t- to build a bit nice thick chapter for you. It is, and and I've got the added challenge of this is not an academic publication, mm-hmm. and trying to properly footnote it and so forth was not uh, not to be done at the academic level. Llewellyn wasn't really interested in that. They're mm. they're really a much more popular um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of press, and so I appreciate that their audiences may not be interested in that depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so trying to scrape out, I just learned. You know, in my doctorate, how to write that way. Now mm-hmm. I have to scrape that back down. And that was quite a writing challenge, but fun to do, ultimately. And I think I tell a much more interesting story, even if I have to leave out what, to my heart, is crucial details. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. you know, it makes for a cleaner tale. Or, or, or uh, uh, just references to back up what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just trying to be thorough. No, they yeah. don't need thorough. They need interesting and exciting. Well, I wonder if... if um after the publication of the book, you couldn't uh, put a uh, uh, a piece into Pagan Currents that has much of the much of that source material, some of the references to it, and make that still make that available for for people who might who might uh, look you up after reading your chapter. I'm sure I'll be doing something like that, maybe okay. even exactly that, but we'll see. I, I need to figure out what Llewellyn actually ends up doing. Okay. Got it. Another project that we're involved in is more forward. Um, in April 2020, we're going to be hosting a small, you know, maybe 100 person or so gathering at um, Saratoga Springs up in uh, the Lakes area. And that's going to be called um, Sunward Gathering. And it's a specifically worship oriented pagan mm-hmm. event. Um, uh, it's sort of a bookend to Hexenfest, which is a great party and music and arts event. Uh, in in pagan culture, we really wanted to focus on worship and making of offerings and prayer and creating shrines and meeting the gods and engaging with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what we're building on now, and we're about to start our big marketing push. In fact, this morning was spent working on the website for it. Awesome. So is that going to be a weekend, basically? Yeah, a long weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, this is our first off, so it won't be as large as we hope it to grow to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to learn how to use the site and try to figure out a different way of doing a pagan event. This will be somewhat unusual compared to uh, even the models that we have, like um, Spiral uh, back in Atlanta or Twilight back at the uh, turn of the century, um, which were long coherent across a weekend sequences of rituals, but mm-hmm. they were very centrally created. This is less so. This is more distributive creation with different priest folk creating different shrines uh, throughout the space and mm-hmm. opportunities for people to meet deities they don't know. So this this uh, uh, definitely sounds more open source. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's always going to be my bias. Yeah. I mean, the gods are always around. We can always meet them. It depends on how good we are at our skills. And that's the kind of thing that I'm always trying to help people with is develop better skills based on what we well know generally works. You do these things, you get these results. What it all means, we label these things gods and spirits and all that kind of stuff, but what they are, uh, we have theories we don't really know. Got it. Well, um, Stuart, unless you have you have another follow-up on, on this, I, I'm, I'm thinking it may be time to start talking about pagan currents and maybe start with the genesis um, uh, yeah. thereof. 
So I don't know, uh, either one of you guys are jumping on each other, right, or whatever, well, however you want to do it. I think I'll start, because okay. um, I, I brought up the idea to Gus at the Claremont uh, Conference of, for Contemporary Pagan Studies. It happens in January every year. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I was fetching, as often is the great source of creativity, uh, about the fact that we don't have a place to post our stuff. Um, all these people are presenting these wonderful uh, um, uh, discussions on what is paganism, its past, its history, its future. And once they're done, where do they go? They sit in somebody's files somewhere. And so I wanted to put them up and make them available and create a low threshold entry. If you're at an event, you've done this, send it to us as a PDF, give us some uh, snippets for uh, um, an abstract, uh, some teaser material, maybe even an image, and we can very quickly get it up on the site. And it's done in a temporal order, so they're all up there that way. Ah, so um, so it sounds like uh, it sounds like the at this. Uh a venue where you were describe yourself as fetching, um, uh, that was an academic, uh, basically an academic. Quasi-academic. Quasi-academic. Um, a lot of people who aren't really terribly academic also show up there and present. Um, there's a certain level of rigor required, but it's uh, mm-hmm. not hardcore academic. Okay. But it's one of the few pagan studies central events. And it's pagan studies. It's not pagan religion per se. So mm-hmm. I'm one of the few theologians who show up to the thing. But uh, there's a lot of really good material and discussion that so, goes on. So this is, I mean, you've had a website, uh, right? And I think Gus has had a website. So so this project has a different scope or a different intended it does. Um, yes. uh, audience that you're trying to create more of a community effect. To some extent, um, it's partly to keep our knowledge together. Um, There's a lot of good thinking going on in the pagan community, but a lot of it's very ephemeral. An event, a talk, given, now gone, and those who were there got Mm -hmm. to experience it, but if we produce some kind of um, collateral from it, if we produce a script, if we produce slides and so forth, it'd be really good if people could see more of that. Stuart and I are uh, involved uh, uh, now in a in a, a sort of nascent uh, online community. Um, um, we've been uh, roped into it and uh, appreciate that. But one of the key words there is has been uh, bandied about is curation. Yeah. And and that's what it sounds like you're basically um, trying to accomplish here. We are. We are. We're trying for a broad uh, population. But, you know, we started with a couple articles from me, a couple articles from Gus, a couple other people contributed mm-hmm. a few things. But now we've got the site built, concrescent. Currents, uh, excuse me, uh, pagancurrents.com mm-hmm. um, and soon to be .org as well. Um, and uh, it's really just the skeleton of it up there, a handful of articles, and we hope to get more of them. Um, looking at what we were able to quickly scrape together is a bunch of old men's articles, so we got to work on that part. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're aiming for diversity. There's a lot of great women out there doing fine, fine work, so we want them in there because we don't want this to be the voice of a bunch of gray old men. Uh, we want this to be the voice of the people in our community who are teaching, who are writing, who are thinking, and we want this stuff to be preserved and shared. So, Gus, what's your take on um, the uh, birth of this project, and uh, how did you respond to the fetching that uh, Sam's uh, alluding to here? Well, my response is an enthusiastic yes, um, especially when Sam pointed out that he had technical skills that I do not have. Um, I've been bothered, well, years ago there was a pagan journal that I thought was excellent called the Pomegranate. And it was, it was, you know, um, paper, not online. 
Mm-hmm. And it's had a wide variety of, of different articles from a wide variety of different points of view. There would be debates in it. There would be poetry. There would be any number of different uh, contributions from either scholarly pagans or pagans who were interested in uh, doing more serious writing and research, but not necessarily in a university context. Then it got incorporated into becoming a academic journal, which drastically changed everything about it, uh, beginning with the fact that it became incredibly expensive if you don't have access to a library, university library. And then, you know, it became something that people wanting to build their careers in academia would seek to publish in. All of that is super good. I have no problem with any of it. But it removed itself from the larger pagan community, and nothing replaced it. And and that's what Sam was talking about. People would come to conferences or gatherings and give very interesting talks. And then it was over, and that was that. And there was no way for anybody to, uh, who wasn't there to hear it or read it. And there was no opportunity for extended discussion of the topics raised. And so one of the things that we're hoping to do with Pagan Currents is to give it the functionality where, let's say I wrote an article, which I did write an article, and then um, and it was on a controversial subject. Some people responded. And there was online debate. Um, unfortunately, one person had to be closed down because he could not be uh, civil. But that, so what we decided to do is that each author who's published is essentially the moderator. Hmm. For, for, that, for their particular thread discussion. For their article. Exactly. And so if somebody is rude, they can they can expel them. But if they do it too often, nobody will, will bother to get involved in discussing their ideas. Right. So there's sort of a, a balance that we hope will happen and that won't put too heavy a, a burden on any particular person because they're only involved with their own, their own piece. Um, and then hopefully, as, as Sam said, as word gets out, we will get more and more contributions, either from uh, people who've given at conferences and would like to see their, their paper uh, get a wider readership, or um, people could submit something on their own. And um, if, it, if it's regarded as, as sufficient quality by the editors involved, then it, too, would be published. So, and they so- would, uh, so, so a key here is that it, it, there is editing. Uh, so there, it's not just a. Um, uh, it's not a just free a forum. forum. Yeah, yeah. So it is like yeah. a journal in that sense. So yes. there's, there's, so there, and and that's a, that's an aspect of curation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and um, the other question I guess I have is, as widespread as the pagan community is today, I, I'm, I'm a little baffled that there isn't something like this already. And and so it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, you guys are. Um, really cracking open something that, as you said, Gus, was uh, existed in a paper form and kind of uh, changed its focus. And uh, 
it seems like there's a need and a and and, and you're responding to a very interesting need. Well, the community is in a state of speciation. It's separating itself out into many different little little groups, subsets, some quite large. I mean, I really shouldn't call them little groups, but uh, mm-hmm. independent of other other kinds of paganism, even to the point of some people calling themselves polytheists but not pagan. Not <laughs> that, quite that's sure sort of what, like spiritual but not religious. It <laughs> has that feel to it, and I haven't Pretty been able large. to get any of them to give me enough of an explanation to really know what's different about it, because many of us in the pagan community have been polytheists for decades and are skilled at it, and so I'm confused (laughs) by their responses, but there's something about paganism in general that they are trying to distance themselves from, and hopefully we'll have a good conversation about that someday. Yeah, I can't can't even, uh, I'm I'm kind of, my mind is uh, searching for what that might be. Indeed, indeed. Well, I've I've seen some people... um, who seem to be trying... Wicca and neo-paganism in general really took off in this country uh, during the 60s and 70s. And it was flavored by many of the values that we had when we were young at that time. What, what, what were called culture, countercultural, right? Countercultural values. But also and the, indeed, uh, that's what my book, Fault Lines, is yeah. in part about. Right. Also a lot of the Jungian material, like the Uranus, uh, um, Uranus uh, body of materials and such, was one of the dimensions that flowed into the pagan community, a lot, along with a lot of other esoteric type groups of that time period. And mm-hmm. that produces a kind of uh, a way of relating to spirits and gods and so forth as what I would call mirror archetypes, uh, Jungian-style archetypes, things that are really just of the mind and not uh, like a Platonic concept of an archetype, because, of course, Plato's, Plato's forms are the gods. So that doesn't really work for this mode of analysis. So putting that aside, the, uh, the Jungian psychological um, kind of approach is sometimes the filter people run things through. And, and a lot of the polytheists are hard polytheists, as they call themselves. And they really, really believe in the real gods as real entities and real beings with agency and all this kind of stuff. And I go, what else are gods? But okay. Um, so, But in, in contrast to this kind of yeah. I, God as mm-hmm. ideas, which we sometimes so, get. But, so, so but I, the other thing... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Gus. Go ahead, guys. I was going to say, the thing that I was getting at, and I agree with what Sam has said, and by, by that definition, I am a very hard polytheist. Uh, but in addition, there seems to be two things going on. One is an attempt by some to distance themselves from that countercultural flavor. Hmm. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. That that dominated many, many in the, in, the, in the tradition back in the 70s and 80s and what have you. Um, and second, and here I'm, I'm expanding from a, a uh, talk that Don Fru gave, that his paper is, is in our, our journal, this, this right. issue. Um, but I may be giving it an interpretation that Don would not necessarily approve of, um, is that I'm thinking of the first coven I was a part of. There were Jungians, there were hard polytheists, there were 
people who had a strong Buddhist orientation, and on and on and on. Very varied. And what, what kept us together was we were a good working group. We had very different theologies, if you want to put it that way. Um, to some degree, it seems people are beginning to take elements and building their own of, of that goulash, and I use that in a non-negative way, um, and focusing just on it and trying to develop uh, a tradition based on one element of, of what had once been a much more inclusive so, so, category and so there's a fragmentation that's taking place. Yeah, that's uh, when uh, uh, Sam mentioned speciation. Um, I was I was just reflecting. Uh, I know Rob has um, described uh, in his archaeological work. Uh, some of his colleagues actually looked at like the speciation in the gay community uh, in the uh, 70s, and and it, it it's a mark of success in a sense that that speciation is happening because it means there's a critical mass large enough of practitioners that they no longer feel the need to uh, uh, you know pool and you know in it, to, together that they, there's enough support for very particular strains to branch out and you have enough people you know not not just one or two people in the group wants to do Norse stuff. You get enough people for an entire group of Norse or Hellenic or Roman or Greek. Uh, well, no, we did them. Uh, Celt. Um, those are been like, not just Celts. It's like, are you going to do um, Brythonic, uh, continental Celt? Or are you going to do Irish or Scott? Or right. all these days? It's like, take your pick. And that's all lovely. And there's also a reality that we are none of those things. And that we have some very important things together as a religious complex, um, mm -hmm. much like uh, traditional Hindu or Buddhist or even ancient Greek religion. Uh, there were many, many, many strains in each place. Yeah. And so they managed to work together anyway to pull off the Olympics and so uh, forth. Well, uh, and, and Hindu, uh, uh, the Hindu religion, that's a construct the British laid on. Yeah, really. It, it, yeah. It, it, that. They are uh, varied and multifaceted in, in their uh, uh, strains and traditions, and even within a particular strain of uh, worship of a god, there's lots of different forms it takes. So that f that seems very, yet they still have a coherence. Uh, that coherence is a little bit tied to nationalism, yep. but um, yeah, well, particularly these days, these days yeah. Yeah, particularly these days, and, yeah. and and you know, Stuart pointed to the. You know the British origin uh, imp imposed on them, but it's been taken up obviously uh, with great gusto um, by people with certain agendas. But but I want to get back to um, um, this process of speciation in the, in the pagan mm -hmm. community, and and I, I'm intrigued by by what you guys have have been saying. Um, so so let me just see if I understand that for the most part until this decade. Um, nah, back in back in the late nineties, okay. as our population okay. exploded, so did the variety. Okay, uh, we're we're possibly the only religion you can join simply by declaring yourself one, mm -hmm. and then you can actually become a leader in our community just by declaring yourself uh, one. I mean, to be fair, um, uh, lots of forms of Protestant Christianity, uh, particularly in the South, 
seem to have that flavor that there's there's plenty of preachers and plenty of people who just pop up and they're they're right their 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 qualifications being that they get enough people to listen to them indeed indeed and that's that's probably a, a core factor to this except there are yeah, America is considered very unusual in terms of Christianity because we have this kind of do-it-yourself sort of dimension right. to it. And that's a good thing for paganism, otherwise we probably wouldn't exist. But what also happened was that there was a community that had been building um, steadily on the Wiccan dimension since the 40s. But then the magical community, uh, we really have to push paganism back to the Florentine Renaissance and see the continual development of progressively purer and purer varieties of paganism, less and less Christian, standing on their own, creating their own kind of religiosity, in contrast to and sometimes in criticism of Christianity. Um, but uh, there was still that's still been growing. And we knew each other. The people who mm-hmm. I knew when I came in in the early 80s, I still know. And we're a community in that we have relations with each other. But then a whole bunch of people all stood up and say, hi, we're pagan too. But they didn't meet the community. They didn't meet our culture. They didn't adapt our values. Um, they didn't become one of us. They just stood up and became part of this religion. Is that, is that related, do you think, to um, the growing presence of social media, online um, uh, availability of well, information. We, we do know that every time you have a new communications mode, you have a new uh, spurt of religion. Um, with uh, clay tablets, we get the writings of ancient Sumer. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, the book gets developed, we get Christianity. When the printing press gets developed, we get Protestantism. With uh, radio and television, um, well, particularly television, uh, but in the uh, the early days of that, radio and such, um, that's when we get fundamentalism coming out mm-hmm. uh, in its current manifestation. You can point to older things, but not really the same thing that you get in 1905. Um, with the yeah, not to scale. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It, 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 it well, seems the, thir- like the 30s was a pr- was a, a a period of a lot of development of, this, of some of this stuff. Yep. Not even just Protestant, but even uh, I'm forgetting the name of the Catholic priest who was uh, such a prominent radio yes. Coughlin or something like yes. that. Coughlin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and very problematic for right. all that. Um, very tied into the similar kinds of things that, of course, were going on in Germany at the same time. The radio broadcasts really moved the people. And, you know, once the people get moving, it's hard to stop them. So if it's not mm-hmm. a good direction, it's a problem. <laughs> but we, on the other hand, while we did come together in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s and such, it was really with the turn of the century and the the, the coming the coming of the net into real power, because, you know, Internet Protocol is 1968, but really in the mid-90s is when people start getting a hold of it. I'm one of the first webmasters that existed. We're only 200 websites in existence when we built the one that I built for Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Mm. And it was like, well, what, who's going to use this stuff? Well, waited a year, and then suddenly everybody's doing it because of the low ease of entry and the rich possibility of sharing your knowledge or whatever you've got with everybody else. The pagan community took off that way. And, of course, as it did, the people who found us didn't find their way to us. And so the cultural exchange that should have happened, in my values, um, didn't, and people started making something very different. Like one of the problems that we had, and I agree with everything Sam has said, is that as we became more visible, um, particularly online, but even before that, there was an explosion of books, uh, the number of people who wanted to study and learn from somebody back then 
dwarf the number of people who were willing to study, to uh, teach it. And so we had a, a problem of, to the degree a tradition depends on personal experience, uh, working with people who already know what they're doing, there was, there was a, a, a vacuum that many people couldn't find a way uh, to fill. And online does that, but of course, you don't really have, and I'm now perhaps being a fuddy-duddy, you don't really have the uh, energetic experience of working with a group. Yes, that's... And so that leads to, uh, and since the original, the initial neo-pagan movement were, were, were group-oriented, it, it leads to a very, very different kind of dynamic. Well, that's that's really interesting to me because uh, you know um, there there was a period of my life when I was engaging in something uh, called the Sutra Salon, which my, our friend, our mutual friend Jim Wilson created, and um, and one of the um, one of the most if not the most frequently repeated admonition of the Buddha in the Pali Canon, anyway, is if you want to strengthen your practice, hang out with other people. Who are doing that? That is, I mean, in that time, at that point, obviously there was there was no online uh, interaction. But 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 I think that's um, there. There are aspects of the way that human bodies and minds and emotions interact when they're present in the same uh, space that that's that a lot of people I think in this in this new age of the internet um, maybe fail to appreciate. Well, I, I want to ask a question to both the, uh, these guys about that. Um, Good. Because it's an interesting point you're raising, Gus. And and I'll, I'll lead up by just my observations of um, communication and in some cases for us working with, uh, you know, spiritual students in different media that Absolutely, having some level of face-to-face contact makes a difference, and I've also found that uh, some of that contact is, you know, a visual thing. So that when you do something like on Skype, uh, you see someone, and there's a more there's a greater dimension than if you're just on a phone call, and there's there's more of an interaction. But I was just hearing, um, I think it was hearing someone who has a meditation app uh, talking about setting up uh, uh, sort of meeting spaces where people can be connected online and meditating at the same time. And what I wanted to throw out to you is just a uh, question in terms of your personal experience in group work. Do you think that there is a possibility for uh, new forms of group work uh, in a distributed context where as long as people are sort of simultaneously engaged in a intent and ritualistic activity with their attention directed towards a common goal, is there a connection, you know, sort of since we're talking about things that go beyond, you know, phenomenal time and space, is there a connection that could be meaningful and induce a kind of... um, experience that is induced when someone, you know, when someone actually participates with in a physical group. Well, um, let me go. Go for it, Gus. Okay. I'm very ambivalent. On the one hand, uh, skilled people can do remarkable things in that context. 
but um, they're skilled. They already know what they're doing. And I, the, the, well, like, for example, um, I taught a number of people uh, how to see energy fields around the body. And uh, most could, but a number of, of people came up afterwards and said, couldn't see it. And I said, well, you know, I'd asked them some questions, and it became clear that actually they did see it. But it was so subtle that they decided it was just their imagination. If this had been online, they would have been convinced they couldn't do it. Um, if they work with somebody face-to-face and they can't see it, then I could say have my field brush theirs. So can you feel that? And some would say, oh, yeah. And so that kind of, of closeness, I don't see, except perhaps with very, very exceptional people, uh, I don't see that developing without uh, a face-to-face relationship of some sort. Once you've got the skills, then yes. Uh, I think stuff can be done uh, collectively at the same time by people who agree to do something uh, on a common theme at a, at a certain moment. And that's my take. Sam? Well, um, it's kind of similar, uh, but my examples are different. And you can probably pick something out of Wicca that would be like this. Um, in the Golden Dawn, um, what we do is kind of like a, an 11-part uh uh, orchestra, uh, 11 pieces, because all the 11 officers, and we have 11 different officers in a Golden Dawn Hall until we haven't even gotten to the membership yet, each of whom is a, doing a different job, like a different piece of music, playing a different musical instrument in an orchestra. And we decided after experience we weren't going to do distance initiations or so-called astral initiations. You had to be physically there because there's something very different about this thing we call energy that's brought to bear in the hall. Um, the the inner work includes a bunch of imaginings of how uh, the each of the officers look as a deity form, Egypt, mostly Egyptian deity forms. And we hold those things in our imagination while doing the rest of the work. Then periodically, the Hierophant, the person running the ritual, will say, okay, everyone refresh your God forms. And as Hierophant, I'd be there visualizing the whole hall and all of its complexity and say, okay, everybody visual, re, you know, refresh your God forms. And it was like looking through the camera of a lens when it was coming into focus. Mm. As everyone else's attention sharpened, so did my vision sharpen. And... I've never been able to get that kind of thing to work at much of a distance. Mm. I suspect there may be some kind of inverse square law involved uh, that at a sufficient distance is just not going to work. Um, I think there are mental plane stuff we can touch into to connect us, um, but we need some of that physical plane stuff if we want the result to show up on the physical plane. Uh, maybe there'd be value in having Sangha that we all know is meditating at the same time, maybe even some 
other uh, means of forming connection. It might provide a point of ref, uh, a refuge like the Buddha intended. You know, the Sangha is one of the three points of refuge in, in Buddha's practice. It, it's what we go to when we're in trouble or when we need support. And yeah, we can kind of get that offline, but there's nothing that replaces a touch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So in, the, in this um, discussion, there was a distinction that you both uh, uh, referenced, and uh, Sam had referenced it earlier in the conversation, and I want to tie that into the conversation we're having about speciation, and that's this notion of skills building. Mm-hmm. So from an outside point of view, the way people will look at paganism and, uh, you know, often construe it as a series of beliefs. You know, sure. I, I, you know, or you know, or something that you choose to because, do because that's often how Christianity has yeah, been right. construed right. by them. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And, and and that and that's the modality that certainly a lot of Westerners have about uh, what religion constitutes. We, we tend to think religions about belief, right? And that's mostly just Christianity, right? And yet, mm-hmm. in uh, magical work and pagan work, there's uh, uh, quite a serious series of initiations associated Indeed. with skill building which mm-hmm. have to do with you know intentional utilization of the imagination and the mm-hmm. development of that that uh, yeah. uh, strength so expanded mind expanded senses expanded awareness right and mm-hmm. and that that those are necessary gateways to uh, go deeper into the uh, actual tradition in the golden dawn there are seven different uh, initiations one goes through yeah, and so my question is, is you know, when you talk about people popping up, you know, uh, as and declaring themselves as a pagan, or you talk about people, you know, suddenly not having an interest in um, where the tradition comes from, it it almost or, or e- and even and even not being interested in studying with someone themselves, right? It, it, yeah, and it's, it sounds it starts to sound to me like there's part of the community doesn't have a uh, uh, the same kind of concept about skills building and necessity for that as other parts of the community. I'm kind of interested in how, if you, is that diagnosis something that you see and experience? Is that, uh, am I... Uh, uh, yes. Okay. Say more about that, Gus. Please. Um, the... Uh I'm, I'm searching for words because I'm trying not to get myself into trouble. <laughs> hey, Gus, there's I only did. seven words you can't say. Oh, <laughs> on the radio. There's a few more. Uh, uh, yes, yes, we know. <laughs> and, um, and I've said most of them at one point or another. The, uh, the thing that bothers me about, and that's one reason I'm thinking our journal idea is so important uh, is that I think spiritual paths are powerfully influenced by the uh, religion and traditions of the culture that they begin to grow in. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, powerful experience along that line that was not positive uh, many, many years ago when a person I know uh, married a Japanese-American who was Buddhist. And the the ceremony was in the Buddhist temple, uh, the Maybeck Design Temple in Berkeley. Hmm. 
And I'd never been in a Buddhist temple. And I thought, wow, you know, because I was invited to the wedding. And I thought, fantastic, I get to see something new. I go inside, and it looks like a Protestant church, except that there's, you know, a Buddha instead of a Jesus. Uh, there's a place for the sermon. Uh, they're pews. And I thought, the Japanese Americans who came here, in part because of how they were treated, uh, worked very hard to make what they do seem as familiar as possible to Americans that were not part of their tradition. And we've had some of the same uh, issues in the pagan community where, uh, like a very controversial issue is, should there be a pagan clergy? Mm -hmm. And I've been one of those who say, don't use that word. Uh, it comes with a lot of connotations that are not us, and it uh, doesn't have a lot of connotations that are us. And words have power. If you're in the, certainly in the magical dimension of the pagan community, words have formative power. So careful what the words are that you use. Um, and what I see, uh, and it's where some of the uh, more negative friction in our community is coming from, is more and more, do you have the right beliefs? Hmm. Not, do you work together, like that coven I was part of, where people had all sorts of different beliefs. Um, but rather, do you have the right attitude on the right issues? And I'm thinking, this is theology, uh, a sort of a crude form, but it's nothing like, uh, certainly like neo-paganism, and it's not what a great deal of paganism across the world in its various forms uh, have been. And just as it, you know, an overemphasis on getting the right beliefs led to incredible problems with Christianity, uh, I think it has the potential to do the same with us. We're not going to kill each other, I don't think, because we don't claim our way is the only way. But um, there are many ways to be very rude other than killing somebody. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, well, you're, <clears throat> I'm, I'm getting lost in the feelings about all that. Um, it's it's peculiar. Um a lot of it has to do with social and political things that are not that are really kind of extrinsic to the religion, though, you know, everything's woven mm -hmm. together at some level. Um, and if you don't have this position on this issue, if you're not willing to use this language, let me give you an example. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, people discovered privilege as a term. It's been used in academic spaces for some time, but it found its way into some uh, colloquial use. And to be truthful, it got weaponized, and it got used to shame and abuse. Mm -hmm. And yep. I have a, a deep history in uh, uh, the study of abuse and uh, codependence and um, the radical forms of therapy that develop around all that. And so I do everything in my life to not abuse people. I don't care how upset with them I am. If I'm going to punish them, it will be out and out punishment. It will not be abuse. It will be clear and known for what it is. So when I'm speaking to people, I don't choose to shame them. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what it was being used as. And well, you couldn't get people to even think about this. It's like, I'm sorry, but you're using this in a way that's hurting people. Oh, it needs to be said. No, actually, I have no argument with the basic principle. Yes, some people have privilege in this situation and some people don't. And these are things we have to work on. But when you're attacking your allies with this kind of language, now this year was the uh, term cultural appropriation. Um, mm-hmm. And the people who are using it regularly have no idea what they really mean. They don't know the history of the term. They don't know what it actually means. For instance, cultural appropriation is the neutral term in in, uh, anthropology. There is good and there is bad, and they say it as such. This is theft. This is a wonderful exchange, but we didn't know that at first. And usually, like with most things, when we first identify a phenomenon, we don't know how to value it. But we're recognizing in that phrase that uh, information from one culture ended up in another culture, and they were using it. So what happened? Well, that's what you have to go and explore. But now it's used completely in a negative sense, and anyone using anything from any other culture becomes cultural appropriation. Well, the problem with that very framework is it's often subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, racist. We are Greeks, uh-huh. therefore only we can do Greek stuff, and anyone else using Greek stuff must stop. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you published your philosophy. We learned it. We've been using it. You know, and that's what happens when things get published or shared. Other people learn from it, absorb it. If it's a good tool, we'll use it. That's what humans do. You know, it's a little more than monkey see, monkey do. But it's essential. But to then blame people for cultural appropriation. Well, this is part of right. the conflict that emerged at Pantheacon this past year. Yeah, and we'll we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll return to that because yeah. I want to because this is a great topic, and we just have a few minutes before the break, so I want to save our uh, 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 controversy. Yeah, yeah, our controversy for uh, the second part of the show. So, but, but, but let me let me tie this back to because because my question evolved from you know uh, the the kind of the the distinction between the need for skills building, and I would add to that what Gus said, doing work together versus uh, belief and uh, sort of uh, virtue signaling, if you will, right. uh, to yeah. community. Mm-hmm. And that's and so that's that's the I I guess what I'm asking both of you because you have uh, uh, very deep vantage points on this is. You know how how pervasive is that in the pagan community now? How is that a problem? Is that just kind of like the fad that we're going through in the wider culture, and that of course you're going to have people who reflect that, or is there really a uh, uh, a deeper issue that as uh, uh, paganism become scales more that? Uh, what it's what it becomes in some context ceases to be uh, uh, paganism, but turns into something else. Mm-hmm. Gus, you want to start with that? Um, I was hoping you would. Okay, I will then. All right. So yes, I think it's a problem. Um, I'm not quite sure where we're going. Our biggest problem in dealing with this kind of thing and whether or not we want to do something about it is another question is we do not have good clearing houses for gathering our knowledge about ourselves and Toto. We have bits and pieces and it's like the classic uh, problem of different people feeling up an elephant. It comes up differently depending on where you're looking, but it's still a thing. 
Um, so we don't really know. And the people who are doing the studies, like Helen Berger, excellent scholar, nonetheless, her, her, a lot of her approaches to things I would consider valid, even though she's doing some of the best numerical studies of us, because she's asking questions from essentially a Christian framework. Actually, she's Jewish, a Judeo-Christian framework. And really the wrong questions with none of the... Uh, what does it mean when you say these kinds of questions um, to unpack? Are these people really pagan? Because to simply believe in the gods doesn't make you pagan. You got to go out and make offerings. You got to do ritual. You've got to do the work. Otherwise, all you're doing is basically painting over what culture you had with other color paints. Uh, the old saying was Jehovah in drag. She's, we're still doing Jehovah, except now it's female wearing a robe, and but we're hearing the same stories coming out of a person lecturing us. Is that pagan? Debatable. Is it what we are? It is what we are. And I don't really... We don't have authority structures that permit us to say, hey, this is a problem. Because if you speak up and say it's wrong, you get pounced on because you're telling us we're doing it wrong. And what are we going to do? So to a certain extent, my methods are persuasive, trying to publish, trying to make an argument, trying to lead and show, but because there's no way to actually press that any further. Mm-hmm. My, my, my approach is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm... I guess Luther, in terms of uh, who's a pagan, in the same way, you know, who's a Christian? And uh, in my God is Dead manuscript, I make the argument that Christianity is, in fact, a polytheistic religion, uh, where many people calling themselves Christians worship very, very different kinds of deities. That the Quaker God has very little to do with the Baptist God, that has very little to do with the Catholic God. And... And on and on, unless it's the god of, I like to say it's the god of multiple personality disorder. <laughs> um, so, in a way, how I approach it is how I approach when I teach uh, working with energy. I say, you know, if I do a, a workshop at Pantheacon, which I've, I've done for years, um, I would say what I'm going to teach you is roughly, in terms of working with this stuff, roughly like uh, taking a hike in Tilden Park. It's going to be very difficult to get in trouble. You'd have to be extraordinarily stupid to get in trouble with what I'm teaching you. It could be done. You could work at it. But it's safe. It's like first aid. If you want to learn more, you learn more, and it's like learning to take a hike in Yosemite. And it has more demands on you, but most people aren't going to want to do that. And what about if you decide, oh, I'm going to do a solo backpack in Yellowstone. Well, then the the penalty of making the mistake is higher. And then you want to do it in the Yukon at at, uh, Tombstone Prevention Park, where if you don't come back, they don't go looking for you. I said, this kind of, you know, shamanic kinds of healing, working, this kind of work, is at levels. And if somebody wants to be the kind of pagan who just comes to Sabbath, public Sabbaths, and has a good time, it's fine with me. Um, because they're opening the door. Whether they want to walk in to the room is their business. 
um, and how far, how many other rooms they want to explore is their business. But it, but they're what's getting lost, I think, in in, in the more uh, head-oriented, ideology-oriented kinds of paganism. Uh, and it's one of the things I'm hoping pagan currents can help bring attention to is that those rooms exist. Hmm. That there are these additional steps that you can take that are incredibly valuable if you if you want to make the effort. They can be challenging, they can be disorienting, but they can also be very, very much worth it. Uh, it's not just being part of an online group. It's not just being, um, you know, going to the Sabbath or whatever the equivalent celebration might be. But the people who do that help to provide the foundation for those who go farther. So I'm, I'm not quite as critical as I, as I heard, Sam. I don't know if that's what he meant. Well, I, th um, I think that's a, good, that, that's a great note to... Um, yeah, and we can explore this yeah. further in the second hour. Yeah, so um, we'll, Thank we'll, you. we'll save our rebuttals for uh, <laughs> after the break. <laughs> so we, we need to take a break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Sam Webster and by phone with Gus Dezerga about their new project, Pagan Currents, an online open-source Creative Commons journal for serious pagan work intended for practicing pagans. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Heroes from the Shadows, which features Handel arias that offer supreme examples of the tensions between heroic and anti-heroic characters in Baroque opera. And I deliberately picked that theme because uh, of the theme of this show today. Uh, contralto Natalie Stutzman sings and directs Orfeo 55 Ensemble. This aria is called Senti Bellido Mio from Handel's Sila.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Sam Webster and by phone with Gus DeZeriga about their new project, Pagan Currents, an online open-source creative commons journal for serious pagan work intended for practicing pagans. So um, let me uh, uh, get started by uh, bringing us into um, recent history. Sure. And um, uh, there's there was... Uh, some stuff that happened at the Pantheacon conference in February, which mm-hmm. I understand um, may crystallize, may have crystallized some of the um, energy around your project, your Pagan Currents uh, project. But for, for, before, before we do that, could I make a uh, make a quick blurb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I lived in Sebastopol, uh, I just heard on your ads that uh, Andre, Doctor Andre Shevchuk was a dentist to support this program. He's phenomenal. Two thumbs up. He's phenomenal. And I'm 1,500 miles away, so they're... (laughs) Excellent. Totally just from the heart. Excellent. I well, recommend them highly. Well, thank, uh, thank you for that. From the, from the heart is uh, what we like in yeah. this show. Thank you. So, so as, other issues. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so, so as we get into the, you know, just uh, for our audience's sake, I'll give a little background on Pan- Pantheacon as well so that people uh, right, right. You know, have a... Uh, all right, so let me let me run, run with this then. Um, Pantheacon, uh, since oh, it's 25 plus years, um, Glenn Turner has been running a hotel-based event 
um, that has settled into the Doubletree down in uh, San Jose. Um, been there many years. Had a few different other incarnations, but eventually ended up there. It seems to be a good venue for the place. Um, and it's a place where many, many pagans, yeah, a few thousand people will get together. We have Between two and three is the regular oscillation range, uh, two and three thousand people. And many tracks of, well, not really so much tracks, but um, many presentations. There'll be like 10, 15 presentations going on at a time because the hotel can handle that. And uh, it's very full. Uh, we take over the entire hotel whenever we do this. In fact, they learn not to have other people in there when we were in there because we were weird enough for one, one population. Uh, <laughs> They once had a, um, a military school's cotillion in there, and they never came back. So, um, yeah, not exactly a good match for too many others. That would have been my easy to see on many let levels. Me, let me add a, a vision. This was when they were meeting in San Francisco, and there was a military ball. Yep. And all of these uh, young military men and officers were dressed to the dressed fantastically and their their wives and dates were you know exquisitely uh dressed full dress they came out for a break. Ball gowns. Yeah. just as a short relatively short but very burly guy dressed in furs with a hat with two horns like a viking helmet <laughs> and an axe and there's another military tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Walk down the hallway right by them. Yeah. And I wished I'd had a can. <laughs> so, yeah. So we tend nice, to take nice over image, the, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> we tend to just take the hotel over and they've learned better. Um, so it's... But the problem is that it's not terribly curated. It's kind of uh, mostly what who pitches up. Um, it's starting to be curated, but it's being curated uh, in the direction more, well, let's get in some new people. And so a lot of older folk are not getting slots these days, and that's that's awkward in its own way. Um, but it's, it's kind of a great showcase for a lot of people, and there's that. But um, the governance of the uh, occasion is... Um, it's an autocracy. It's a monarchy, really. Um, Glenn Turner is the one true authority and all that. There isn't really a whole lot of uh, community input or community council. Um, she owns the event, and she makes the profit from the event. Um, a significant profit, apparently. Uh, so it's that is where the problem lay. All the decision-making is with her. All the responsibility is with her. And while... With pagans, that often is not a bad thing. Having an autocrat at the center keeps things going. And we have a number of organizations that are long-term organizations that are run by autocrats, and they do a good job because they're good people. But, you know, autocracy's real problem is when it changes hands um, or when there's a conflict. And that's what we got into. There was a conflict. Um, and this there's is... the conflict that, that Glenn was only partially involved with. Yeah. At least my my hit on what happened was that a number of people, by various means, got her confidence to be the uh, workaholics that organized and put on Pantheacon, and it's gotten so big that that and Glenn is spread so thin that she can't do all of that, so she delegated. She, has a she delegated unwisely to people who had a very serious ideological agenda. And so, consequently, it wasn't just making it available for new people. 
which is a good thing to my mind. It was also an attempt to get rid of the wrong kind of older people from doing presentations. So, and it blew yeah. up big time right. this year. Partly because there were charges leveled, but nothing like due process. And you're not going to get justice unless you have due process. And some of it really just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, there's a fellow by the name that goes by the the, um, the handle, I suppose, uh, Witch Doctor Utu. And back on the East Coast, he's a Scotsman, but he studies African traditional religions, particularly as they show up in, in the Americas, um, and put together a book on conjuring Harriet Tubman, um, uh, Mama Moses, uh, for the, because he actually is living in one of the houses on the Canadian side of the uh, Underground Railroad. Mm. And so he's gotten to know this history and has built up this body of work and talking about it. I haven't read it. I have the book now. but uh, uh, So he was going to come out and present on the book, as you do. But some people objected that he was a white man talking about black people's history. Uh, sort of on the idea that only black people can talk about black history, um, which is kind of awkward. Particularly as scholars, that's kind of verboten. Um, but nonetheless, and the Underground Railroad had a heck of a lot of white people making it work. Indeed, it was you know it was a collaborative effort. The, the Quakers involved in that were quite quite uh, quite a number, and quite of them got killed for it too. So you know it was their blood on the line as well. I don't, I'm not an expert in this, but when I've researched him, what I found is that usually when there's a photograph of him, he's surrounded by black people because he's at some event, an African traditional religion event, and he's the one white guy there. And you know, like the gods pick who the gods pick. Their skin color doesn't seem to be terribly relevant to this. So we, but he was accused of cultural appropriation. Okay, well, show me what it was. No, no, he's cultural appropriation. He's a white guy doing black things. That seemed to have been the sole argument. It would have been nice if a proper argument was laid out. It would have been nice if Glenn had been able to step back and, and kind of hand that over to uh, a panel of judges or be the judge herself with uh, proper evidentiary discovery and um, some kind of jury or something like that. And this became even more important in the other critical uh, um, conflict that went on. Um, Max Dachau uh, has been writing uh, on goddess material for decades and has been presenting at Pantheacon for decades, 20 odd years. And she was accused of being um, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist um, because of a protest that she participated in at a trans rally. Um, argue, uh, apparently anti-trans, or at least arguing with it. Um, I'm sorry, but that's kind of like that's people's right to a point of view. It doesn't matter what the point of view is. They have a right to it. It's been when, when they're imposing it on. And there were claims of violence and all kinds of stuff around it. But having dug, dug I mean, in... Inherent in just simply making a statement. Yes, but there was also apparently some physical tussling going on oh, okay. somehow in this okay. that was reported variously on both sides. I've read reports from both parties. And I'm going, wow, I have no way to adjudicate this. Mm -hmm. And nothing like due process was presented, it was one very, very loud and very verbally abusive group and against this one woman and maybe the couple other people that she had been involved in the protest on, but it was mostly her. And it was all about cutting her off from being able to speak at the con. Now, 
I'm not really in a position to say if she did something right or wrong. I know there's some of the facts involved that aren't disputed, but the facts of there having been as much of a conflict as was stated is hard to grasp. Um, it's not certain which it is, but that's what you have discovery for. That's what you have presentation of evidence for and some kind of due process. But instead, there was a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of uh, just screaming, this is bad, this is wrong, and forcing somebody who had been invited to present to not provide and in, in both of their cases. And this is, this is horrible. This is a horrible way to treat people. It is abusive. Regardless of who was at fault, the process itself was abusive. And it's making it harder to uh, participate in this event. There, there was a, um, I, I seem to catch in some of the discussion that I saw going on uh, uh, with both of you online in, uh, uh, I think it might have been on a Facebook discussion. Very likely. That there was a, another point, and I may have been associated with uh, uh, this last person you described, that one of the points of controversy that's viewed as transphobic is a idea in... Uh, pagan work that you might want to have a cis woman ritual as distinct from a trans woman ritual for energetic purposes mm -hmm. and uh -huh. and that and so i'm i'm interested in that because um uh it's an interesting concept uh, and it's and it, and it gets into definitely the radioactive area in our common or, or uh, certainly the liberal culture today. Mm -hmm. Is it yeah. not so radioactive in the uh, right culture? But, uh, in the uh, liberal culture of uh, where where are, where are there are appropriate objective lines to draw in the reality of the body, um, you know, the, and the and and the energetics of the body. Versus the uh, both the gender identity and the felt sense of the person inhabiting that body. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested. First, just elaborate on: Am I understanding that particular controversy correctly? Was uh, it, you're was, putting your hand on it. Was this the one that was uh, at issue in this particular uh, uh, deplatforming? I'm sure that's a, one of the dimensions to it. Um, the yeah. ostensible dimension was that there was physical violence involved. And well, yet, it went beyond that. It went beyond that. Go for it, uh, Sam. Um, I mean, there was that, but of which I never saw any evidence that Max had been involved, and I had asked for the evidence from the people who'd made the accusation, and I saw nothing. But more deeply, even um, neo-paganism originated with a view of the body as and the material world as an expression of the sacred and therefore properly understood every dimension of the physical world has a sacred element to it that's why uh, our sabbats are called the wheel of the year that go from birth growth maturity harvest death the time of death and then rebirth everything and so among other things um, gender and sexuality in the biological sense are regarded as sacred appropriate if, if dealt with appropriately and, and to this many shamanic traditions and native traditions including some that i've worked with very deeply uh i so say there are 
energetic differences between, I won't use the word cis ever, but NATO, <coughs> excuse me, NATO woman and NATO men. And so that with this Brazilian group that I worked with closely for six years, uh, women and men were regarded as equally powerful and skilled potentially in what they did. But because the woman takes in the spirit of what will become a new human being, she's energetically oriented towards taking things in, whereas a man is not. And so for certain kinds of what we might popularly call exorcisms, women are discouraged from participating in any of the crucial rules, although if necessary, yes, they can. But they have to be particularly careful. There are things they're taught to give themselves a level of protection that a man would not be uh, required for. So that means that in traditions, pagan traditions, uh, hundreds of years old, maybe thousands of years old, these differences have been recognized not as superior or inferior, but almost more like yin and yang. And the ideologues uh, who objected to this, I mean, their favorite statement was, a trans woman is a woman, and that's all there is to it, end of debate. And in most contexts, I would have no particular problem with that. And I don't know of any so-called TERFs that would have trans-exclusionary radical feminists uh, that would have any particular problem with that. Certainly none that I know would. But in terms of certain types of rituals, if you wanted to have a ritual for uh, honoring menopause, you want to invite people who have had or will have that experience. If a woman has been raped, and you want a cleansing ritual. I don't, you know, it makes sense that at least for many, they would rather have it done by natal women, women. And certainly not a trans woman with a beard, which some have. Just psychologically, as well as energetically. So the position was, let the people who want to do the ritual um, determine who's invited. There'll be some that are uh, natal, there's some that are trans, and some that are inclusive to all women, and some that would be inclusive to all people. I mean, I'm not invited to either either a trans woman ritual or a, a natal woman ritual. So I'm, I don't have a, a dog in that particular fight. But I understand energy. I understand magic to a degree. And here was a case of people using an ideology out of academia uh, to attack a core value of neo-paganism in the name of paganism and refusing to get involved with any serious discussion of the pros and cons, but rather uh, by simply denouncing um, the people who disagreed with them as being transphobic, mm. which is simply not true. Uh, I mean, I have 
close trans friends. I'm not transphobic in the slightest. And it's just I see the world differently than they do, and they can't. They, not only can they not, they will not address it. Right. Indeed, it, it came across in an astonishingly ideologic kind of way. Um, it involves assertions of things that are counterfactual, and um, uh, it was presented with a load of violence, some mostly verbal, but it, it was just not necessary to do this. Some care and compassion for all the mm -hmm. people involved really would have been nice, but that wasn't what was going on in the original Pantheacon event, and wasn't, uh, uh, more immediately, uh, wasn't what I experienced when um, we published a piece of Gus's on on um, trans and two-spirit. What, what's the title you got for that thing, Gus? I'm not coming. Oh, gosh. I'm far from it now. But my, my argument was that a lot of the trouble we're having is because gender... There are more than two genders, and that Native American, many Native American tribes have a term that um, had different words for gender. The Navajo, I think, had five. A yeah. Navajo friend told me. Yeah. Others have three. And that many uh, gay and perhaps trans uh, Native Americans have started using the term two-spirit. It's an English term, and it covers... You know, the gamut of how it was employed in Native American traditions. But it's also perfect for trans people in, in the pagan world. And I've talked to trans people uh, about it. And it hasn't, you know, it's, it's basically you're neither completely male nor completely female. You are, in a very real sense, have powerful elements of both. And that is a good thing. It's not... A bad thing, and it and it uh, creates possibilities that aren't available to uh, a natal man or a natal woman. Exactly, exactly. There's nothing negative about it, and that article got savaged. <laughs> Strangely, um, I'd read it the article back in uh, January, February, or something like that when Gus gave me an early version of it. I read it. It was a standard kind of academic piece on it. I mean, light academic. He wasn't, you know, heavily citing and all. That was very readable by an ordinary, intelligent, thoughtful person. And it's like, then we published it, put it up. I knew he had polished it up, so I knew there was some new stuff. This, and then this vituperation, this incredible verbal violence saying how awful, evil, and nasty we were for even publishing this. I mean, you know, from my perspective, I'm a publisher. It's just a channel. I'm putting stuff up there. If you disagree with it, then put together a paper and we'll publish that too, which was my one mm -hmm. comment in on the uh, thread that showed up abruptly on my, uh, on my feed for uh, Facebook. And that was just uh, attacked in and of itself, and a couple a couple people did show up on the on the site. Uh, one of whom actually presented some actually rational arguments. The other one, his opening argument started with, "How dare you even talk about this stuff?" It's like, sorry, dude, you've now just lost every argument you've had because this is what academics do. 
They talk about things. They may not have experienced <laughs> it, but they've been thinking about it, and it's their job. Not just academics, thank you very much. Yes, well, but it's kind of their job, and the rest of us get to do that, too. Yes. And this is sort of the liberal idea. This is central right. to the liberal project, that we don't attack each other as persons. We go after each other's ideas, but we do it with courtesy and respect because there's another person over there. That you, that you assume, that you uh, you give someone the benefit of the doubt, yeah. assume that they're in intent is positive, even if their uh -huh. ideas may be uh, incomplete. And, and the purpose of conversation is to... Or, or even worth criticism. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the purpose of conversation is to find that common ground and then, uh, ideally, uh, modify each your respective beliefs. Or at least explore yeah. the concept more thoroughly or whatever. Yeah. I mean, we may or may not ever resolve that, but we keep talking about it and we don't attack the people. And as Gus said, uh, the conversation started off in this this way. Then it got a little bit better and more rational, and then suddenly it became very much more attacking. And I, when I read the piece that Gus responded to, saying, "I'm you're done here," it was like, "Wow, that was vicious." You know, there was no need for that. Gus is just doing what Gus is doing. He's an intellectual. He's <laughs> writing about a topic that actually hurt a bunch of people in our community. Trying to think about that and talk about that and trying to get some balance around it is what a thoughtful, caring person does. And this is what we were being shut down for. So, um, yeah. had, if somebody wanted to write a rebuttal and it was not a personal attack, we'd be delighted to publish it. Right. Happily. In fact, we think it would add to the conversation. I'm still trying to understand what they found so offensive in the material. It simply seems to be their arguments were so flat that it seems to be simply that it was written about by somebody who wasn't one of them. But then again, they didn't write the article, so I'm put in a quandary by that. But, I mean, uh, this, but what you're describing is a, a feature that seems to be arriving in social media. It's a, uh, so. And... It's not only social media. I mean, it's also part of like the modern woke culture yeah. that uh, that there's a dogma of what's right, and uh, it's not even necessarily coherent. Well, but it but but the point is that it that it is not uh, interrogatable. No, right. It, 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 well, that's a that's an issue. I mean, you, that, uh, as with a, any dogma. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the term weaponized is is the salient point here, and. I'm just curious. I from, like that term. Yeah, and I'm curious from both of you, you know, from a pagan perspective, from an energetic perspective, from, you know, br bringing your, your considerable skills to bear on the underlying currents of energy that are giving rise to this. How do you diagnose this? It, it's not just the pagan community, but you, the pagan community, which you would think would be the most resilient, <laughs> is uh, suffering from the same thing that's playing out in the, uh, certainly, the uh, certainly American society, and maybe to some extent uh, other Western societies, but it's definitely something that's a, f a feature that's affecting the uh, progressive uh, side of the political spectrum. Mm, scary. You, you uh, don't ask uh, light questions. No, nope, nope, he's, he's good that way. All right, I'll take a little bit of it, then I'm going to throw this to the social scientist on the other line there. So I'm not. I'm just a, I'm just a minister. Um, this has been responded to by some as saying a a need for rigid thinking is a counter to the openness of society, that everything is so open, so undetermined, so free that um, people are saying, no, no, this is the truth. 
to lock that down and to provide a sanctuary in the midst of all this turmoil and change. Having looked at history the way I do, I'm really looking grateful for the turmoil and change because uh, the piece about woke culture that I agree with is finally people are realizing, yes, the big piece of our history is the abuse of one group of people by another group of people. And that's that oppression has driven most of what has been our history. And we need to wake up to that reality and stop doing it and prevent it from being. I'm with them on that. But the moment you say we cannot and we should not interrogate any position that we have, we abandon the liberal project because that was the piece that ended the wars of religion in the beginning of the so-called European Enlightenment, because they were killing hundreds of thousands of people, civilians. They'd go into some city and slaughter everybody because they had a different theological framework. And this is insane. It, it could have been even far worse, but the fact that the two powers that were involved were balanced, they couldn't win. And so they eventually realized, no, look, we may not agree why the water is rising at the dike, but instrumentation and measurement shows us that the dike is going to break. And we all need to work together to build the dike back up so we don't flood all our houses. We may not agree on the why, but we can measure that it's going to happen because that's the piece of objective reality that we can all get access to. This is what permitted peace to eventually come to Europe and has been the best project we've had on the planet, getting people to actually sit down and talk over their problems rather than killing each other. But humans are still prone to do this. Think of Rwanda. Think of Sarajevo. Think of all these places where we just gather people together and slaughter them rather than talking. Talking better. We need to do that. So, Gus? Um... It's interesting because Sam gave a good social science uh, analysis, uh, which I agree with completely. Uh, and I'm going to give a more um, metaphysical dimension to it. Oh, good. Or a mystical dimension. Whatever right. you want to use. <laughs> I think one of the most dangerous things that you can do in terms of having any influence over your own life excuse me, just to say, I am a fill-in-the-blank. Because as soon as you do this, excuse me, and I'll use the word woke, for example, but liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, whatever, Christian, even pagan, as soon as you say that, you give the power of that word control, uh, a good deal of control over your life. And when the word is critiqued, you are critiqued. You are attacked. (laughs) And so, you see, to me, mostly normal people. And then what they identify with is criticized. And you get an insane reaction. I mean, I uh, in the... I first started thinking about this when I was trying to figure out why uh, so many of Trump's supporters were so completely irrational. And yet I knew some of them, you know, you meet them in family at Thanksgiving, they're normal people. And then all of a sudden you press the button and boom. Um, And now I see the same thing with with. You know, many of these woke people, they're normal people, they're intelligent, they're friendly. 
and suddenly they cannot hear you, they cannot see you, they're distorting your arguments, you cannot have a rational conversation. What's going on? Uh, and I think it's a kind of ideological trance that started in underlying, you know, the issues that Sam talked about of fear and, and wanting to find a stable place somewhere. But as soon as you do that, um, you run the risk of, to use the, the terminology that uh, some of the uh, scientists who talk about memes use, you run the risk of being parasitized. And there are two experiments that illustrate just how extreme this can be. Uh, well, one's an experiment. One was a TV show. The experiment, which anyone can look up online, is the gorilla in the basketball court experiment, in which uh, people are asked, the subjects are asked, to count how many times the basketball is handed between members of the same team. And in the middle of it, a gorilla, somebody in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the court, beats their chest, and then walks off on the other side. About half the people don't see it. And since you've heard this story, if you want to go, go to the color one, not the black and white. And you'll, you'll see for yourself. And then there was, on the other side, what people expect to see blinds them to many things that are in front of them. And at the same time, uh, and that's where, you know, Sam was saying about the rise of modern science. What can we agree about that we can use to test these arguments, to evaluate these arguments is so incredibly important. Um, and the other was uh, America's Got Talent and Howie Mandel is a germaphobe. And uh, a young man who's a hypnotist comes out hypnotizes him to believe that everybody around him is wearing thin gloves. Whereupon he shakes hands with all sorts of people he would never shake hands with. Um, even though he's out, he brings them out of the trance. And I'm saying these are examples of how powerful belief can be in shaping what you see and therefore how careful people need to be before they identify with something too closely because they give their power up to it. They, you know, they become its subject rather than the idea being their tool for understanding the world. So I would add that to what Sam has said uh, to help explain the virulence of, of these reactions is that these people feel attacked personally right. and, uh, and flip out. Well, uh, that all uh, I understand clearly what you're sa what you're saying, uh, Gus, and and but I will as we have very little time left, and I want to sort of bring it back, uh, keeping in mind what you've just said. How how does that relate to how does this tendency uh, capacity of human beings that you're pointing to relate to the I don't know if bifurcation is the right word that you were describing in the in the pagan community over the last 20, 20 or 30 years. Is, is, is that the fundamental um, 
thing we can look at, explanatory mechanism that uh, that has generated um, the the uh, capacity for people to um, identify with different um, views and create these these enemies. You said bifurcation. Yeah, the, and uh, I meant I meant multiple, that multiple branching, really. But yeah, yeah. sure. Species. Well, I was pointing species. to you. You had talked about how how there were people who 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 arose twenty or thirty years ago who who didn't have the sort of experience of of uh, contact with the culture of contact yeah. with the with the already developed and existing pagan culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I th- I think the wonderful thing about pagan culture the way I encountered it, the way I imagine Sam encountered it, the way I hope our journal can help to encourage, is that difference is not right or wrong or better or worse. It's the analogy I like to use is uh, spiritual paths and also psychological paths and individuality are like petals on a flower. The center may be, it's, you're not going to the top of a mountain so much as you are a petal linked to the center is is demonstrating its own beauty, its own way of being. And so Hellenic paganism is not better or worse than Wicca. They're different. They're different petals on the spiritual flower. And uh, with that kind of tolerance, but it's more than tolerance. It's not just, oh, all right, I'll put up with you. It's that, yeah, that's nice. It's not what I do, but bless you for it. Well, um, mutual respect, perhaps, and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's the core of the modern pagan sensibility. The way. Um, I, I certainly learned it. Yeah, the way I was exposed to it too. I mean, the, the diversity in our groups was great. So, and we learned to deal with different people. And one of my wicked initiations was a tra- initiators was a trans woman. So, you know, it's like, that's always been there for me. Um, the point being is that different people bring different things to the potluck. And that's a good thing. That creates more variety in what we're doing. And so we generalize from such a metaphor to the richness that we bring. But speciation is about pulling together things that are like each other and making them more intense and producing more of that particularity. But can we then bring it back in a what has, was called uh, back in the 70s pan-paganism, uh, a broad framework, a big tent paganism in which we all feel some kind of commonality together. And that, that problem is now real for us. There are many people who don't feel that. Frankly, I'm finding, looking around at the kind of pagans that are around me, it's hard to recognize them as what I do and what, as pagan. Uh, they've become something else, and I often am quite uncomfortable with it. So, so it's a new a new ecology that yeah. that, that needs that, that you're calling for. It. Mm-hmm. And I'd like it to be one in which all of us can survive. Uh, there are understandings of our own history that are just so wildly at variance from the facts that are being asserted as such that that it's kind of confusing to me. Um, I don't have a problem with it when it doesn't get in my face, but when the events that I'm going to end up with some of these more ferocious dimensions, like this kind of politics and, and social, this is right and this is wrong kind of stuff, 
once a person gets into that position of authority, it becomes very dangerous. And what we're finding is our, uh, the events becoming themselves more authoritarian. Mm. And it's like, no, this is not my people. This is not the way I play. And, okay, I, I, I don't need to play here anymore, so I think I'll not. Um, so I'm looking to create, and, and that's part nature of our project, is yet another channel where the diversity of paganism can come together and talk across our diversities to learn from each other. Because I haven't yet found somebody I can't learn from. They always have something new and different to add to enrich my experience of the world. And I have to sit and listen to that. So if we're all in our little isolated bubbles, we're not going to get that enrichment. And that's what I want to create here. Well, thank you. I think that's a. Uh, I don't know if you have a, a, a very short final word, Gus, <laughs> to throw in here. Uh, all I can say is that Sam said it as well or better than I could. Well, it's certainly a, a, a great uh, testimony from both of you as to what you're trying to do with pagan currents. And it's, it's to me, it sounds like a very exciting project. Thank and, you. and, you know, often when we have these kinds of discussions, as you said, you know, you get, it can be kvetching. Or you can actually try to do something about it. And you guys are trying to do something about it by modeling what is possible. And I think in the end, that's all any of us can do is to model what's possible so that, uh, as it were, those with eyes who can see Mm -hmm. uh, will uh, find a resource and uh, uh, be enriched by that. So Stuart and I can model gratitude for the uh, wonderful conversation. It's been really interesting for me. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners will, will enjoy and appreciate it as well. And so thanks so much, guys. It's been it's My been pleasure fabulous. to be here. Well, thank, thank you, you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. All right. I uh, guess I'm going to turn you over to Rob now, so thanks again. Okay. I'll see you when next time in Sebastopol. All right. Cheers. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking with Sam Webster and Gus Zerica about their new project, Pagan Currents, which is an online, open-source, creative commons journal for serious pagan work intended for practicing pagans. Next week on the show, Rob and I will speak with Peter Haas, minister at the Church of Conscious Harmony, a contemplative Christian community in Austin, Texas. The teaching of the church stands on two legs. One, the contemplative Christian tradition as presented by Father Thomas Keating and others, and two, the esoteric Christian fourth way, known as the work of inner Christianity, as presented by Morris Nicole, G.I. Gurdjieff, and others. The Church of Conscious Harmony is firmly founded on these teachings, but is not limited by them or to them. Participants are free to reach deeply into all religious and spiritual traditions for insight, wisdom, and inspiration, using these gifts to illumine their own religious roots and to enliven their spiritual practice. The contemplative Christian tradition is primarily supported at the Church through the teaching and practice of Centering Prayer and Lectio Divina, as well as the study of the works of Thomas Keating, Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, Bernadette Roberts, and other mystics. The Church also has an active Centering Prayer Retreat Ministry. The work of inner Christianity is primarily expressed at the Church through the study of the works of Morris Nicole, Rodney Collin, G.I. Gurdjieff, P.D. Ospensky, and others. Classes, small groups, and the Gurdjieff movements are ways that the work of inner Christianity comes alive as an active agent in the transformative process. Tune in for that show on Saturday, July 20th from 4 to 6 p.m.
upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County. The Thursdays at Many Rivers event series in Sebastopol is on hiatus for the summer, but there is a special event tomorrow, Sunday, July 14th, starting at 4 p.m., a 70th birthday party for Jim Wilson, one of the three founders of Many Rivers Books and Tea. Jim's energies, commitment to spiritual practice, and generosity in sharing his wide knowledge of religious and spiritual literature have together formed one of the bedrocks of the store. He's hosted many classes and reading groups, notably including the Sutra Salon. He has given dozens of talks on a remarkably wide range of topics, and his sure guidance has informed the widely appreciated selection of books on the shelves. Jim has authored many books of poetry and spiritual commentary in his honor. After an hour, an hour or so of conversation, snacks, tea, and libations, we'll cut the cake and invite friends to read a favorite one, and just one, of Jim's many poems, or perhaps one, just one paragraph, from one of his prose works. In sharing a favorite poem or or paragraph of his work, we can share our appreciation for his many hard-won insights shared in words with Jim's circle of friends present. So remember, that's tomorrow, Sunday, July 14th, Bastille Day, Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Friends and fans of Jim are invited to join the party. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussions of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Heroes from the Shadows. Contralto Natalie Stutzman sings and directs the Orfeo 55 Ensemble. This aria is called Non so se sia la speme. It's from, it's from Handel's Cerse. Enjoy. <laughs>
Thank you. 